Welcome to the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. OutofLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. What Muhammad Ali is to boxing, Dr. Ron Paul is to liberty. Dr. Paul is returning to our show today. He is a passionate advocate of freedom, of peace, and prosperity. He fights every day, and he doesn't just fight for one group or another. He's fighting for all of us. He's been doing it for a long time, and I'm so happy to see his ideas coming to fruition that they're gaining more acceptance. Again, liberty encompasses all of us. It is the right to determine your own life and to cast your own way in life. And right now, it seems that we have a lot of people that want to infringe their will upon us and force us to do things that we don't want to do. And Dr. Ron Paul has been standing against that since the start of his career. Dr. Paul, I believe, is one of the most important people on the planet. I believe that he is also a teacher's teacher. Not only is he teaching the ideals and values and virtues of liberty to the masses, but he's also teaching conduct and honor and integrity to all those who also share those ideals who be considered leaders and teachers within the field of liberty. Dr. Paul seems to always have a nice manner, demeanor about himself. He's 82 years old and he does the work of 100 people. I've met him in person and he also has an incredible grip. So thank goodness he's a nice man because if he was not nice, he could easily take me and throw me across the room. Let's begin our second interview with the legendary Dr. Ron Paul. Welcome back to the program. He's the founder of the modern-day liberty movement, a legend, an icon for those who support liberty, and somebody who I consider a hero. I mean, it's so surreal to talk to this gentleman right now. Please welcome back to the program Dr. Ron Paul. Dr. Paul, thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you, Ryan, for having me back. Got it. Oh, and to learn more about Dr. Paul, please go to his website at ronpaullibertyreport.com. Dr. Paul, I guess the last time we spoke, there have been some major advances. Unfortunately, they've been in, that, in every kind of ism except for libertarianism and individualism. You see people thriving with Marxism, socialism. The last couple of weeks, we've seen more of our rights being decimated. Now a certain aspect of the government can sexually assault us and be immune to prosecuted. I'm wondering, what do you think is actually going to take, what's it going to take to spark a national concern and panic about these egregious loss to our civil liberties? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good question because uh, we, we want that event to come. Unfortunately, when that does come, it's going to be very, very chaotic, although I'm an optimist on the long run. You know, an economic calamity is very, very painful, and I hope that will wake us up and we're not on the verge of the type of problem that I think we'll have before they get serious about monetary reform. It has to get to the point where the dollar doesn't function and we have to do something about it. And that that particular event is unknown, uh, you know, when it's going to occur. I think about all we can do as free market people and Austrian economists and libertarians is to uh, look at what's happening and try and understand how we got here and uh, where it's going to lead us. Many people, including Mises, Mises knew total socialism always failed, and he wrote that as far back as 1912. So listen to him, the, the, uh, the Russians, the Soviets would have never tried communism. And they're, they're, still, they're still around. And uh, although we see a bit of a rise in the talk about socialism here, 
uh, I think the failure of socialism in the 20th century is a big message that we have to, to get out. And when, when people talk about it and think that's the way we ought to go, we ought to keep saying, uh, look at Venezuela, look at Venezuela. But that time is coming, and uh, we don't know. I think our job is best is to uh, inform people and have them understand why it's happening, because if they don't understand that, they won't understand what our solutions are. So you've been talking about the largest bubble being burst in history. The catastrophic economic collapse will probably result in hyperinflation. I'm curious, do you, what do you think is going to determine whether the U.S. or the world will embrace sound economic policies that are rooted in liberty or kind of collapse towards tyranny? Well, history would be on your side of that argument. But when uh, it's proven that the government created the problem and they don't have a solution, uh, maybe they'll wake up. The reason why I lean toward optimism uh, is that I think we have a better understanding now of economic issues and monetary issues, the principles of liberty, even more so than the founders had at the beginning. They were very brilliant, and they knew about it and tried very hard to give us a system that would work and last. Of course, there, it had flaws in it, and it gradually eroded. It got, especially, uh, we have lost a lot in the last hundred years, and as you mentioned in the opening, there's, we see it almost on a daily basis now. But I do think on the positive side that uh, monetary policy is uh, much better understood than ever before, even though you know, Jefferson and um, Hamilton argued over central banking and, and government-run uh, creation of money and what money's all about. But because there's the Mises Institute and other groups, people like you that are spreading a message, I come across people every single day that I didn't even know they existed and what they're doing, all kinds of programs. And uh, this image that <clears throat> every college kid, uh, you know, is locked into this crazy uh, Marxism, communism, socialism. I just don't think it's true because I go to the campuses and I go to some of these meetings which are under the uh, Young Americans for Liberty, and I meet some very great kids and that they're understanding this. And then I'm also not discouraged by the fact that, uh, you know, you don't have to think that you have 51% of every college kid to go in a certain direction. We just have to have more people like you who know what's going on, you're spreading a message, and put them in the right place. Right now, why it's discouraging is what do we hear? Uh, we we hear it from the government and and the media. I was on some shows today about, uh, you know, that uh, be, because we're talking to Russia right now, which we like, I like this particularly, I think that's what we should talk and not fight with them. And they said, oh, now the people are saying, well, that that is treason, treason, you know, just to be able to talk to them, you know. And yet uh, that's been done. I think talking with uh, talking with our so-called intellectual uh, enemies or our military enemies is the best thing we can do, at least there's a, as a starting point. Do you think that peace overall compared to the world is not exactly in the best interest of industrialists or people who make a profit a lot of war? I mean, is peace probably the worst uh, yeah. thing that can happen? I think that's the main thing. Why are so many people, and I'm always arguing that if you look at the superficial part of it, uh, they say that, well, it's the Republicans and Democrats that they would just get together and fight this stuff. Well, they're together too much. It's that Trump sort of challenged the status quo of the Republicans. The Republicans and the Democrats right now uh, are the ones that want to make Russia the the, the enemy because they're both involved in the deep state. They're both involved in uh, 
the foreign policy that we have and is and and some days I don't fully understand what Trump is up to, but I do know that the uh that the deep state uh and the military industrial complex, the banking industry and those who support the Federal Reserve are all on the same side. And uh when you hear the arguments uh up there in Washington you think it's oh the Republicans are the good guys and the Democrats are the bad guys. Well, it's it's not quite so simple. It's there's good ideas and bad ideas and there's a lot of bad ideas still floating around in both parties. Dr. Paul, do you think that a weakness of the liberty movement could be that it isn't a tribal philosophy or one of exclusivity and one that doesn't give its members a feeling of specialness over the others? I say this because we're talking about liberty and freedom, something that it's for everyone. So I'm wondering if you if that could be a reason why maybe it's not catching on right now or people aren't rushing to it because I feel a lot of people in our country are kind of breaking up in tribes based on philosophies that kind of pick one group over another. I was wondering what your thoughts were. Yeah, I, I think they don't understand that because if they really understood liberty, the people who like, you know, the uh, the liberal lifestyle, as long as they don't hurt people, they would be tolerated and accepted and they can do what they want. It should bring people together, uh, what your personal lifestyles are and what your beliefs are. Even even on economic policies, if you want to have volunteer communism and socialism, you can do it as long as it's voluntary. So that uh, I think that's what uh, they they don't understand uh, that, that that liberty should bring people together. But uh, so far, people think that this is just a good reason to antagonize and fight and, and make it political and, and make it a power struggle. But uh, I, I think that uh, this, this whole idea that it's, uh, you know, just tribalism, I think that is the case. But I think we have to make the case that libertarians don't want to go and change people. We just want to restrain you in initiating violence against each other, and you can go your way and we'll go our way. And uh, if you care at all about peace and prosperity, which we all should care about, but some people just like chaos, and they like uh, social chaos because uh, they happen to uh, have a society that they that they think is utopian and idealistic, but it's quite a bit different uh, than one that would be in a libertarian society that rejects violence. Are you surprised at how many people are kind of not aware of what's happening or not really paying attention, not really outraged about the egregious losses of civil liberties. And because I, when you, when you watch your show on a regular basis, the RonPaulLibertyReport.com, again, always doing great specials, talking about civil rights, civil liberties. And the ideas that you present, I feel like there's something that everyone can get along with and everyone can embrace, yet they, they seem <clears throat> to not bat an eye when these fundamental laws, uh, fundamental rights are being taken away. Does that bother you a lot? Does it upset you? Well, no. It, it makes me want to work harder, and I also concentrate on that the, the target will be uh, the uh, the uh, those that small number of people, 10% of the people who make the, make the difference, and they, and they will respond. But uh, I think my frustration comes through in the program, and I'm sure if you see ever see me talking about the TSA, yep. the, uh, you know, uh, transportation people at the airport, I, I say, why don't, why don't you people yell and scream? But then again, if I have to travel, I have to go and go through that. So it's a, it's really a mixed bag. I know it's horrible. If I had to go three or four hundred miles, I'm not going to get on an airplane. But, uh, and, and we do, and I'm just thinking, I think I mentioned on the show the other day, that we're now 
ushering in the age uh, of a group of people that were just barely born at 9-11. They have no no memory of what it was like when we had a little less uh, government authoritarianism and we, we adapt too easily. But that just, to me, it doesn't make me – well, it discourages me to a degree, but it also should motivate, motivate us all – to try to explain to people what the problems are. That's also the reason why one of my goals has been for the long-term goal would be to have a homeschooling program that would, uh, you know, work for the long term because uh, it's the educational system that is the deep, you know, big threat to us. Uh, the, state, the government running schools are a disaster and think of what's going on in the universities now. So, but we have technology now. When I get discouraged, I keep thinking, well, when I got curious about this back in the 1950s and the 60s, there was no internet. You couldn't get information and I'd have to go and look for books. And, but now, anybody who's curious, if, if, if we as individuals trying to get people interested, we have to get people to be curious enough to go looking. And uh, that's why they can't be said, well, this is so bad, we can't do a darn thing about it. I think they say, well, we know what it is, we understand it, there are answers for this, we need people to understand what's going on. And the neat thing about it is once a person becomes knowledgeable and seems to make sense without becoming obnoxious, people will say, well, you know, things are bad, maybe we ought to at least talk to people like that or listen to them and that's where i think the effort is uh and should be made is uh trying to understand it do do one's best to uh study and understand why markets aren't that aren't bad and if you really care in a humanitarian way to take care of the poor because people are motivated by good instincts you just can't to put people out in the street if they don't have a doctor, you know, this sort of thing. And they have to have an explanation for it because just think, if you don't look at it, you're going to have uh, Zimbabwe and Venezuela and, and, and our inner cities. We're already reaching it. All you have to do is go to San Francisco. Yep. <laughs> and all of a sudden, holy man, uh, even I get amazed that a city like San Francisco can be turned into a monster like this. But so far, they haven't done what you said. What is it going to take? Why do they keep electing more radical individuals in these places? And uh, that, that means they haven't accepted our ideas yet. I don't know what it's going to take. It's, maybe they're pushed out. Dr. Paul, I just have one final question for you. And okay. about debt. Every, all the time we hear that, okay, the world is drowning in you know, $248 trillion in debt. All this debt is being out there. And you talk saying, okay, well, we're going to have this crash when this debt becomes liquidated. Who is this money owed to? Who is this money owed to? Who has a claim on this debt? So when this bubble bursts, who's going to come out and say, by the way, we're the ones you owe all that money to. We're the ones that are going to take land or resources in exchange for that debt. I'm just so curious about that. Well, it's uh, it's various. You know, if it's uh, the federal government debt, you know, that that is one thing because uh, that's the $21 trillion. But then there's uh, obligations, uh, you know, unfunded obligations. It it really isn't written up as uh, <clears throat> as a number of people who have it because uh, it's the people who lie claim to their federal to their social security in years ahead, and that's a couple hundred trillion dollars in a worldwide worldwide debt. I don't know if I'd worry too much about who gets paid and how this is taken care of, because the one thing that you can know is that when it gets this size, the debt has to be liquidated. Nobody can pay it. 
And uh, the big question, though, is who's going to – there's somebody – in a way, there's a theoretical payment. Who, who, who has to pay the price? And, and you could see that in the last recession. It was, it was a debt problem, and there were bankruptcies. The government came in, and they decided to print a lot of money, and uh, the middle class suffered. That's always the case, and some wealthy people got uh, got bailed out. So there will be a lot of that, and it will continue, and the people in power you know, will struggle to protect themselves. But, you know, if you, if you go to the extreme of it, there's not many people – uh, in in Venezuela anymore that uh, protected themselves. They probably uh, got out of town. They left, you know. So uh, it's it's um, it, it's a, it's crime it's crime because the payment will be, you know, the standard of living for the middle class. But also what we're seeing, in order to hold it together, you have more authoritarianism and loss of liberty. My argument is. If you understood society and you understood what a free society is all about, and every one of us went broke tomorrow, but we had the right to keep what we earn, we had a right to have our own monetary system, and we all went back to work, probably in a year, most of us would be very, very happy. And so it's the issue of, of liberty and understanding uh, and get the debt out of the way. But this is this is prolonged, and they, they patched it up uh, many times over the years. And uh, this is uh, th- this they will continue to do this. And you wonder, well, how how can they last with the dollar? I mean, actually, it looks worse in some of these third world countries. If you're a third world country, there's no trust in the people or their wealth. In us, it's different. We have the military strength. We have a lot, still a lot of wealth left, and we have the the uh, the reserve currency of the world. And there's a lot of trust, so there is a subjective factor involved, and it's uh, referred to as the subjective theory of value. So if people perceive the dollar as being valuable, it will seem to work for a long time, but also it get caught get caught up. It was sort of like in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, we all knew the dollar was not backed by gold. But it was at $35 an ounce and kept restored order. But eventually, that $35 an ounce was rejected, and there was a breakdown of that system. But still, there was still a fair amount of trust in the dollar. But one thing I'm convinced of, eventually, that confidence in the dollar and the debt system and the Federal Reserve and the welfare state, it, it, will, be, it will be lost, just like communism was finally <clears throat> destroyed because it was not viable. Dr. Ron Paul. It was a great honor to speak with you today. I want to thank you so much. I also want to thank Chris Rosini and Daniel McAdams of the Institute. You guys were all working together so hard and bringing you about so many great stories about liberty. And to learn more about Dr. Paul by going to his website at ronpaullibertyreport.com. Also, please buy this book, Liberty Defined, The Revolution 10 Years Later, and Soars in the Plowshares, which I love. Dr. Paul, you're a great hero of mine, so thank you so much for coming on our show. Uh, thank you for having me on and keep up the good work. Thank you. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Special thanks to our legendary guests. Again, one of my heroes, Dr. Ron Paul. Special thanks also to Daniel McAdams and Chris Rosini. And special thanks, as always, to our virtues, Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Lisa Caza, and Miss Constance Stellis. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, please go to our website at outerlimitsradio.com. Till the next time we meet, my friends, wishing upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care. Thank you so much for listening.